You're tuned to North Fork Works, and I'm Hazel Kahn. My guest today is Stephen Schott. He's an educator in marine botany and habitat restoration at Cornell Cooperative Extension. Steve lives and works on the North Fork, and I'm very happy indeed to have him as a neighbor. Welcome to North Fork Works, Steve, and to WPKN. Well, thank you very much, Hazel. Appreciate the, uh, the invite to talk. You are very glad to have you. I'm, I'm looking forward to actually what you're going to tell our listeners about two areas of aquaculture that are of great interest to people on the North Fork. One is kelp, which is a seaweed, and the other is eelgrass, which is a seagrass. You work in both of these areas. Uh, yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Let's start with kelp, what it is, how it grows, why we need it, and then we'll go and we'll ask the same questions about seagrass, if that's okay with you. Sure. So kelp or sugar kelp as the species that we're primarily interested in New York, although there are others that hopefully will start to catch on, uh, is a brown seaweed. So seaweeds are broken down into three groups by their colors, primary colors of green, red, and brown. There's some you know blending across the characteristics, but in general, you can tell the difference between the groups by their color. And then there's other biological, physiological, and chemical differences between groups as well. But sugar kelp is probably what a lot of people think of when they think of seaweed. These big, long, flat, leathery strap-like blades. We have these giant kelp meadows, kelp beds off the west coast of California into Alaska with sea otters in them. Our kelp isn't as glorious. It's a much smaller cousin than the the giant kelp in California, but it grows in the Northeast. It likes the colder waters. Long Island is actually the Southern geographical limit of sugar kelp on the East Mm -hmm. Coast, but it will grow up into the Canadian Maritimes. The colder water doesn't bother it and actually thrives in areas further North of, of Cape Cod. We have another species of kelp that can be commercially exploited in our area. It, that's known as horsetail kelp. This is a generally shorter. It tends to be very wide, but not as long. So where sugar kelp blades can get up to 15 feet long, typically mm. they're, they're between 6 and 10 feet normally is what we come across, but they can get up to 15 feet long. The horsetail kelp is probably three to four feet in most cases, but it's much wider. It could be a couple feet across at its base. That's the, uh, the horsetail. horsetail kelp. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what we're talking about with kelp aquaculture in New York or on Long Island specifically is this long strap-like sugar kelp that's uh, very narrow and long. At its full maturity, it has a consistency of almost leather almost feels synthetic, like a rubber. It's very thick and flexible, but it's a pretty amazing plant to to work with. It's been harvested and used as a food source around the world by peoples of different cultures for for thousands of years. As far as the United States goes, where we underutilize what people term as sea vegetables, our seaweeds, but it's becoming more and more of a cultural phenomenon, seaweeds beyond just sushi. In Our region, it's been harvested in in Maine and New Hampshire along the shorelines. Uh, Initially, seaweed farmers practiced wild harvest. At low tides, they would go out to the shore, harvest the kelp, bring it back and hang it up to dry. And the kelp would be used for animal feed, fertilizer, things to that effect. But 
it's seeing more and more of a popular following as a food source. And, and chefs around the world are, are really starting to work with these seaweeds to make dishes that are more appealing to the general populace. Kelp is grown on in aquaculture settings on, on line culture. So this is a species, again, that likes cold water. In our areas, that means that it's usually put in the kelp seed strings. The kelp produces spores instead of seeds. And that allows people in a hatchery type of a setting, in controlled setting with tanks, to be able to get these spores to set on nylon twine, very, very narrow, one millimeter. They're grown out for about five to six weeks in, in a hatchery situation under controlled conditions, cooler water, varying light levels and nutrients. And you'll get the little kelp, baby kelps will grow to about one to two millimeters tall before they're ready to be transferred out onto either an aquaculture lease location or onto an actual farm setup where the twine is then wrapped carefully around thicker line up to a one inch in diameter, and they could be 100 to 200 feet long. And it's just wound around this thicker line, tied off. And so this is in uh, late November, typically early December in our area, that, that the kelp seed strings are going out into the open water. The kelp slowly grows over the winter. And as it grows, it'll grow off of the little one millimeter nylon twine and start to attach itself to the rope more firmly. It grows slowly in the wintertime. You think any time the water is that cold, you know, it's very difficult for anything to grow. But mm -hmm. also the day lengths are very short in our wintertime. So the slow growth until about March and the days are getting longer, the water's starting to warm up. And then these baby kelp will actually start to take off and really grow. They've been documented up to an inch of growth a day. But at these early stages, the late March is where a lot of people that use kelp in culinary arts really like it because the, the baby kelp is translucent. It doesn't have that leathery texture. It's used in seaweed salads to flavor broth for chowders and, and stews. At this point, it's it's usually anywhere from six inches to a foot long with this baby kelp. As you get into the spring and, and the kelp really starts to put on these high rates of growth, it thickens very quickly and would require more preparation to, to make it more palatable. And then the farmers can choose when and you know what type of product. Do they want to harvest baby kelp to sell or do they want to wait until the kelp is larger and sell? At that point, you could have up to 100 pounds of fresh kelp per foot of line growing. So so it can produce quite an immense amount of biomass over a short period of time. And that could be used for food as well as fertilizer, soil amendments. Some places it's used to feed cattle and other livestock. What is the benefit of kelp fertilizer? As the kelp's growing in the water, in our coastal waters, it's taking up tremendous amounts of nitrogen and carbon. Mm. So... That carbon and nitrogen gets locked up. Carbon, we have issues with greenhouse gases and, and climate change, as well as ocean acidification. By removing that carbon, you're, you're reducing both of those. You're putting that carbon away where it reduces acidification and we're locking up some of the CO2 from the greenhouse gases. For the nitrogen, we're pulling out, especially on Long Island, that's one of the biggest problems we have in our coastal waters is high nitrogen. And that feeds things like harmful algal blooms, other macroalgae that grow during the swimming season that people don't like to have bumping into them while they're swimming. Mm -hmm. When you harvest that kelp and move it into a land-based system, either as food or fertilizer, you're taking those nutrients, the carbon and the nitrogen, and locking it away for a period of time. So you're taking it out of circulation. And then you're putting it back into the land. 
and you're putting it back into Which the land where, without, where it should be. Yes, without using a chemical fertilizer. So really, coastal New England and Long Island, historically, back in the colonial days, and really up until the Industrial Revolution, depended on seaweed, that farmers would go to the shoreline to harvest that had washed up from you know where it was attached to rocks offshore after storms, it would break free and wash up on the shore. They would go down with these big wagons and load up and bring it back and use it as a fertilizer on their farms to, to enrich their gardens and their, their farm fields. Once we hit the Industrial Revolution, we started using chemical fertilizers a lot more and relying on it. Chemical fertilizers wind up in our coastal waters. So by growing seaweeds in our coastal waters around Long Island, we're capturing some of that nitrogen that's escaping land and putting it back up on the land. That's a cycle that's mm -hmm. easily repeatable. The other nice thing about the kelp is it doesn't require water and land space. We have a lot of surface water area on Long Island. So there is a lot of potential to share the waters with other user groups. And at the same time, we're cleaning our waters and providing this continuously cyclable product. And this is all salt water we're talking about? This is all saltwater. Brown seaweeds are predominantly saltwater species. While kelp is a native species and technically could grow anywhere around Long Island, we generally don't see it in a lot of our estuary areas because there's a lot more freshwater that comes into those areas, as well as, say, the Peconics and, and Great South Bay especially. There's not a lot of hard substrate for, for seaweed, for kelp to attach to. So, and this is a concern that many people have, is that we're, we're introducing something that is not native and it is a species that is native to Long Island. It just needs specific conditions to grow in. In the case of some of our local waterways, it can't grow on those because it needs a hard substrate to attach to. So unless we provide it that hard substrate and in aquaculture terms, that would be the long rope lines, it wouldn't normally be found in those areas. So the natural way for kelp to grow in our waters, hard substrate, you're talking about rocks? So we see kelp growing down to about 30 feet naturally in our area. Any kind of hard substrate, you could have a boat wreck or an artificial reef, as long as it receives enough light and provides that hard material for the, the kelp to attach to, you could find kelp there potentially. I understand the kelp spore and baby kelp attached to the rope, but mm -hmm. what does the rope attach to? Do we not just free-floating? No, no, no. Most of the people who are showing interest in, in seaweed aquaculture and sugar, growing sugar kelp are oyster farmers around Long Island. So all of these oyster farmers have some kind of lease grounds where they own or they lease bottom from various municipal entities, be it Suffolk County or the local townships. Some people have farms in state waters. As part of the aquaculture process, they are allowed to put down anchors. In this case, it could be mushroom anchors on either end of their 100 to 200 foot long line. And then they would stretch that line with the kelp between those anchors to hold it up off the bottom, but also keep it in place. These are arrays that, that are being typically used by our shellfish aquaculture farmers on Long Island to keep their cages that have oysters during the summer growing season from being moved by currents or uh, storm events. This is a type of infrastructure on their aquaculture lease grounds that a lot of these growers would have already. The nice thing is they're usually done by the holidays with their oysters. They put whatever oysters are going to overwinter on the bottom. And now they have lines that would be potentially available for them to put kelp on for the winter. 
they could harvest the kelp in May, early May, and clear their grounds again for oyster aquaculture after they do their kelp harvest. So it really works into the local cycle of how the oyster aquaculture farmers are working. Do they interact? Do the kelp strings give shelter to the oysters? I mean, is there a a mutual benefit there at all? or it's- Not as a habitat, because to grow the kelp, just like any other plant, needs to take in carbon dioxide, and in this case, out of the water column instead of the air. That is, it's taking in that CO2 and storing it, reducing mm-hmm. ocean acidification. If the ocean's very acidic, it makes it more difficult for shellfish like oysters to set up their shell and, and secrete their shell. So doing a mixed aquaculture where you would have seaweeds or some kind of plants that are taking up CO2 while you're growing shellfish in the same location is not a foreign concept. They call polyculture, where they're growing multiple species of all different kinds. And the hope is that you're benefiting all of the species that you're growing at the same time. Anything can be grown as a monoculture. There are always going to be people who specialize and then people who are more uh, generalists. Mm -hmm. The farmer would decide. But Mm -hmm. right now, most of the people are showing interest, grow oysters for most of the year, and then are looking to add the kelp or other seaweeds potentially down the road as a secondary crop, fill in a slow time in their their work cycle and And extra money. Yeah, sure. And the natural, the Aboriginal, if you like, kelp that was growing there before the cultivated crops came in, is that still growing well or has that conceded to the cultivated? So (laughs) that's that's kind of a complicated question. So in very few places are shellfish farmers or seaweed farmers growing their crop over the top of or directly Mm -hmm. adjacent to native populations. Mm -hmm. The kelp that we use to seed the kelp lines for these farmers comes from native populations. So we rely on these native populations. We go out in in the early fall and harvest blades of kelp that have started to become reproductive. And that's where we get the spores Mm -hmm. that we use to create those seed string lines. Mm -hmm. So we are reliant and we are very protective of those native populations because without them, we don't have a seed source Mm -hmm. to produce the the seed string, the kelp lines that the farmers are growing. One of the issues we are facing with global climate change is local waters are warming up. And as Long Island is already at the southern geographical range for kelp, we are seeing that the kelp tends to be moving either further east in Long Island Sound and in Gardner's Bay, to where the waters are a little more cool, they get more ocean mixing, or they're moving offshore into a little deeper water where it's cooler. In 50 years, there may not be natural kelp populations Mm -hmm. along the Long Island shoreline. So we are very cognizant of how the native kelp populations are being used, and there will be definitely plans for appropriate management of those populations because the farmers are going to rely on those to be able to actually produce their their farmed kelp. So it's a very so, integral part of keeping that Aboriginal kelp population mm-hmm. intact. I understand. That's very interesting. So in the meantime, we've been talking about kelp all this time. It feels we're neglecting this eelgrass. <laughs> the seagrasses are not the, the plants we see in our salt marshes that are you know covered by the tide twice a day as it comes in and out. We have one species of true seagrass called eelgrass, and these grow 
totally submerged, subtitle below low tide. Usually they start to grow the meadows three to four feet below the low tide line. Their ancestors had moved from the oceans onto the land and then moved back into the ocean. So they have characteristics very similar to land plants. They produce pollen underwater and they have male and female flowers and then also produce seeds, but they have lost some features. They don't stand upright. They don't have very rigid stems like land plants because the water buoys them up Mm -hmm. instead of needing to make uh, wood and lignified cells to stand them up against gravity. Mm -hmm. They differ from seaweeds in that they are considered true higher plants. They have roots and stems, or in this case, rhizomes, which are underground stems, just like your irises in your garden. And then they do have leaves that come up. And again, they have flowers. So whereas seaweeds are very unspecialized in most cases, they have what they call uh, a holdfast and a kelp that would kind of look like a root but it doesn't act the same way. It glues itself to a hard surface instead of digging into a sandy bottom or muddy bottom to provide anchorage like Mm -hmm. like a higher plant. They don't really have a stem and pretty much most of the cells can photosynthesize, especially if it's a, a thinner seaweed. Whereas in plants, it's very specialized. The roots don't photosynthesize, the stems don't photosynthesize, and it's just the blades or the leaves. Mm So seagrasses once formed extensive meadows around Long Island. Probably at one time, the entire bay bottoms in the Great South Bays, Marches and Shinnecock, were blanketed and carpeted with these eelgrass meadows, and much of uh, the Peconics were as well. Back in the 1930s, there was a wasting disease epidemic in the Atlantic. A particular pathogen is still found in eelgrass now, became virulent and caused almost 90% of all the eelgrass on the United States coastline and the European coastline to die off mm-hmm. in a matter of a couple of years. The remaining populations that survived are resistant to the pathogen, but if they become stressed with things like poor water quality, high water temperatures, low light conditions, they can become susceptible and succumb to, to this parasite. The grass did show some recovery over the following years from the 30s and into the early 70s. But on Long Island, we've seen a lot of coastal development. Water quality around the island had started to go downhill. All of these things impacted the overall health uh, of eelgrass. In the mid-80s, we started to have see our brown tides in our local waters. And unfortunately, impactful currents for eelgrass. Eelgrass needs a lot of light to survive. And it basically acts as a shade cloth over the top of the eelgrass meadows that are growing in our bays. So a lot of the eelgrass that growing in the deeper waters wasn't getting enough light and died off and were relegated to these smaller meadows. And now with global climate change and warming waters, eelgrass tends to like cooler waters as well. So in a lot of shallow areas on Long Island, bayments and creeks and where we don't get a lot of water exchange and, and the water gets really warm in the summertime, you're seeing those eelgrass meadows dying off. I get the impression from what you said is they grow much more slowly. I mean, they're no way comparable to, to the way the kelp is growing. No, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. So eelgrass meadows, once they're established, tend to rely mostly on vegetative expansion. So those underground rhizomes grow and move around and put up a new plant mm-hmm. here, a new plant there. It's a slow process. Eelgrass does reproduce by seeds as well, which is really important because it adds genetic diversity and the seeds can actually move further away from the the parent plants and potentially expand meadows. But there's a limit to the rate at which those meadows typically can expand. 
So why do we need eel grouse? We're not eating it, right? There is a new movement with a chef out of maybe Portugal, but I believe it's Spain, where he actually is starting to look at eelgrass seeds as a food mm-hmm. source. And certain native peoples, especially the Seri Indians in, in the Baja, California area, used to rely on the eelgrass seeds. So it could be a food source for humans, but not on the scale of, of cow. But eelgrass is very important to a lot of commercially exploited species of fish and shellfish awesome. that especially Long Islanders really enjoy, the bay scallop. Eelgrass meadows, the uh, baby scallops are able to uh, swim up onto the eelgrass stems and attach mm-hmm. themselves with their byssa threads and keep themselves off the bottom and away from a lot of their predators. Mm. Um, so it's just the habitat that they're providing. It, the eelgrasses are creating these, these dense meadows. They've got these underground stems and roots, and they're storing a lot of this material underground and really taking a lot of that carbon and nitrogen and locking it away underground in their different tissues. And again, that makes them very valuable for global climate change, as well as uh, helping to keep our local waterways in improving their, their water quality by removing excess nitrogen. Are they seasonal? Or not? No, they, they are year-round perennials. Mm-hmm. So you can find genetic individuals that are hundreds of years old, potentially. They're kind of a canary. They like cleaner water and clearer water. So where we start seeing eelgrass declining, it's telling us that it's either there's too much nitrogen or not enough light. Those factors tend to be tied together. I've been involved for over 20 years with eelgrass restoration and also monitoring our our native meadows that are still persisting and following their health for, for the Peconic Estuary Partnership. But Cornell has been working for probably 25 or more years um, trying to bring back eelgrass in areas where it was lost or to identify areas that eelgrass didn't normally grow, but now conditions are such that they will support the growth of eelgrass through restoration activities. So is that what you were doing in the field? I was actually out at Fisher's Island, which is in Eastern Long Island Sound. It's uh, part of South Hole Town, but it's only about a mile off of Connecticut shoreline. So it's as close to New England as you possibly can get Mm -hmm. uh, for South Hole Town. And we were collecting eelgrass flower shoots so that we could harvest the seeds from them for Mm -hmm. restoration activities. The reason we were out at uh, Fisher's Island is eelgrass seed development is based on water temperature. So where where waters warm up quickly in the spring, those seeds tend to become ripe sooner. So there are a lot of meadows that are ready in mid to end of June. And as you go further east towards Orient, for us at this point in time, really the only cold water temperatures that we have that where the seeds haven't already been released by the plants, they're still developing is Fisher's Island. The water temperature out there was about 67 degrees the other day and South Hole mm. is more than 10 degrees warmer than we left. So you you pick the flowers and the seeds are in the flower? Yes. So they're uh, a separate shoot from what normally grow, what normal, uh, the vegetative part of eelgrass. They look different, totally different, and they're not persistent. So once the seeds are released from those flower shoots, the flower shoots die. The meadows produce so many more seeds than we could ever possibly Mm. harvest. So we really are, are having a minimal impact to the population. So Steve, talk a little bit about... Uh, in the time we've got left, about what's going on in the New York State Legislature about cultivating kelp. There's currently a bill on the governor's desk. I 
have not heard that he signed it yet, but it did pass the legislature. Um, it's being referred to as the Kelp Bill. When Suffolk County was handed the responsibility of managing the underwater lease grounds for aquaculture in the Peconic Estuary, conservation law in New York State did not include seaweeds as a aquaculture product. So the laws do not specify that farmers could grow a seaweed products, be it kelp or other species, they were relegated to shellfish. So with the growing interest in, in kelp aquaculture, as well as other seaweeds going forward, a lot of farmers were looking to have a change in the law to allow them to have the option to grow seaweeds on their, their lease grounds. Mm-hmm. So right now, that is really just awaiting the governor and no one expects that he won't sign the bill. And that will allow Suffolk County and New York State DEC to go through the process of changing the law and be able to allow the permitting of seaweed aquaculture, aquaculture lease grounds, kind of uh, bays and gardeners bay. Does that mean you're expecting a lot of expansion in the industry? Right now, the focus has been on small-scale experimental work. Cornell has worked with several groups, New York State DEC and uh, Lazy Point Farms has been sponsoring a a project to to give these farmers some experience and also kind of test the waters to see who would be interested. There's going to be a need to start building the economic need for the product or the, the end users. So we need to start cultivating people that are interested in using it for culinary purposes or using it for agriculture. That part of it is, is a little lagging and uh, hopefully that will catch up in a couple of years. I'm going to express a concern that's, and that is a question of scale, whether kelp aquaculture is in danger at all of things like overfishing or extraction or deforestation, other planetary consequences, catastrophic consequences. Could you talk about that as we end? Sure. Uh, I don't see seaweed aquaculture becoming invasive. The issue that we have with farmers wanting to grow them in our embayments is the conflicts in user groups. And this is something that we've already seen with uh, issues in the Peconic Estuaries and Gardner's Bay with uh, aquaculture lease program run by Suffolk County, where some user groups may perceive that they're being pushed out of of areas. We just need to be smart about how we proceed with these types of activities in our coastal waters. The nice thing about kelp aquaculture, again, is that it takes place after most people are are done being on the water for the year. So Mm -hmm. we shouldn't see much in the way of interaction with Mm -hmm. uh, recreational boaters or or fishing in many cases. This comes down to regulators and the permitting processes. You know, if someone is going to plan on, on growing kelp, it should be sited at an appropriate area. And these are things that Suffolk County and DEC or or New York State DEC are, are working on to guide this industry. But the potential for seaweed aquaculture and preserving, you know, the resource like eelgrass by cleaning our waters, sequestering carbon dioxide, reducing ocean acidification locally, the ecological benefits, environmental benefits of of these two organisms should hopefully be considered well worth any kind of compromises that we may have to make to to allow them to continue to be pursued in, in Long Island waters. You're, you're talking about two organisms that have been on, on Earth for millions of years, and they haven't changed how they go about their, their daily 
lives and the actions and their physiology, how they take up mm -hmm. and, and grow in our local waters is exactly the type of economic benefit that we need at this point to, to both reduce our coastal nitrogen and also help control our runaway CO2 issues that, that are impacting not even locally, but globally. Yeah, if we had to design them from scratch, we couldn't have done a better job. Of course not. And that, that's typically what we find if you, if you work with the natural world. You tend to yep. find that Mother Nature figured it out and did it right the first time. It's very difficult to improve upon that. In the two minutes that's, that's left, Steve, please tell our listeners where they can go for more information. Sure. Uh, we have a website, seagrassli, that's one word. Uh, .org, and that uh, details some of the eelgrass restoration work that we've done around Long Island and other areas. It gives some backgrounds about seagrasses, more of the biology and, and the benefits, and some of our, uh, our favorite animals that we encounter. As far as the benefits of seaweeds, there are so many resources, mm -hmm. but uh, the growers up in Maine and New England, there's Green Wave, University of Connecticut, Dr. Gobler's lab at Stony Brook, SUNY Stony Brook is, is starting mm -hmm. to do more work with kelp and other species. Put in sugar kelp, put in seaweed aquaculture, and you, you'll have more reading than you know what to do with. Well, thank you very much, Steve Schott. Thank you very much for spending time with North Fork Works and WPKN Radio. Steve Schott, Marine Botany Habit Restoration Educator at Cornell Cooperative Extension in Southold, New York. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much. You can hear North Fork Works right here on the first Wednesday of the month and anytime at all as podcasts on hazelcon.com. Mm -hmm.